0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on. Settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts.
1: Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. What is it all about?
0: I think that we live in a weird time where any takedown is immediately politicized by like some hysterical rage mob online, Yes. whether it's on the left or on the right at this point. And this idea that you've been like fundamentally harmed because your content kind of came down for a second. I think that we can do better than this. And I think that that's where we should be headed.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. This week on the program, we have Renee DuResta, who's really a dynamo. She does all kinds of stuff, but she spends most of her days studying how propaganda and misinformation spread on social media so she's a mozilla fellow in media misinformation and trust she's a former venture capitalist a former wall street trader she's advised congress and the state department on how terrorists use the internet to spread their message etc etc and i thought in the week that the uk has put out this 110 page report into fake news in which they labeled facebook a digital gangster I thought it was worth bringing on renee to talk about just the state of propaganda in 2019 uh, misinformation general fakeness on the internet and i think you'll find the chat really illuminating and in fact we actually tried to do this a few weeks back but renee got the flu she got the allergy so she was kind of knocked out of commission for a couple weeks and then she has recovered and as luck would have it i got sick this week, not long after recording this podcast. This was not due to Renee. Uh, it's been going around the family. Anyhow, so I've spent the last couple days in bed, so if you hear a bit of a lag in my voice, that is why. But I'm back. I'm out of bed to record this intro for you. <laughs> so anyhow, I think you'll enjoy the conversation and it'll give you some food for thought. So without further ado, I give you Renee Resta. We've been trying to do this for a while, and as a miracle of timing, this is the week that UK comes out with this big report on Facebook and fake news, and your specialty is studying how misinformation and disinformation travels around the internet. Is that accurate? Yes, that's pretty accurate. So I don't know if you had a chance to read the report. I guess here we are, it's 2019. Is there any hope, or what do you think in terms of the direction of travel? Do you think Facebook, YouTube, Google whatever, Instagram, are they having a moment where they're like, actually, we are going to have to kind of fundamentally remake or redo what we are doing here?
0: Yeah, I think that the notions that we started advancing in 2016, the the idea that they needed transparency, accountability, and governance, that's now been echoed by, I think, governments in um, at least four or five countries. You just referenced the EU report that just came out. We've begun to talk about it in the U.S. much more clearly. Something in the way of specific policies, not enough, but some legislative suggestions, and then this new UK report focused on things like privacy. It focused on foreign influence in political campaigns, which is more what I look at. It focused on data breaches. You know, brought up some of the uh, aggregate IQ, Cambridge Analytica. The, the British report was extremely comprehensive. That's my uh, that's my that's my, my plane reading for tomorrow. <laughs> 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 but the uh, I think what we're starting to see is this momentum towards recognizing that what some of the things that we learned following 2016 have have really crystallized in people's minds, the idea that the system is not working.
1: To me, it seems, and I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast, that 2016, the election, increasingly, whether it's Trump or Brexit, or a few other big political events that year, it does feel like that increasingly is seen as kind of the Lehman Brothers moment or the moment where people are kind of looking back and being like, oh, something is broken here.
0: Yeah, I remember that night, the night of the election. If you recall leading up to it, one of the things I've been doing actually is going back and reading the news from 2015 and 2016 because I think that... We've come so far in two years that actually if you go back and read the stories about fake news, before fake news was a term that was co-opted to mean like things I don't like on Twitter, it actually had a very specific meaning, and it referred to things like the headlines that were proliferating across Facebook, things like Pope endorses Donald Trump for president, Megyn Kelly gets fired from Fox News. There was an entire moment, I don't know how many people really registered it, it was called conservative gate kind of in, you know, Researcher circles, but Conservative Gate was the idea that Facebook trending stories was disproportionately, quote, censoring conservative news stories from trending. And as a result, Facebook eliminated human curation entirely. And this was. this was Yeah, because there was
1: a story, it was a Gawker Gizmodo Gizmodo wrote? Yeah, there was piece. a whistleblower, somebody who claimed right.
0: that he had worked on the team and they were encouraged to. And this um, it does
1: feel like this is a much bigger moment than people kind of have.
0: Right. People don't really remember it quite as much because Russia became the dominant story. But fake news was not about Russia. The stuff that we knew about the campaigns in 2016, Brexit and the the U.S. presidential election, was not that foreign actors were interfering. It was that information had kind of gone haywire. These crackpot conspiracy theories were trending on Twitter. They were trending on Facebook. Many of them were political in nature there were the beginnings of investigations into what came to be called the Macedonian teenager pages. That was the idea that some of these fake news outlets were being run out of Macedonia. So they were pretending to be U.S. hyperpartisan news sites, but they were actually being run for clicks. So it was kind of an ad fraud operation. So fake news wasn't actually about Russia. That was a whole separate thing. So
1: when did they get, sorry, just to cover that off, when did they get rid of human curators? And was that an immediate reaction to conservatives saying you're censoring us. Yes, it
0: was a reaction to uh, to the allegations that uh, conservatives are being censored. Um, Glenn Beck and a couple of others like physically went to Facebook for yeah. a meeting with either Mark or Cheryl somebody somebody pretty significantly high up there. I am trying to remember the exact date. I want to say that was September 2016. It was definitely during the campaign because a lot of the you know the Megan Kelly getting fired by Fox yeah. News that would have been some time after the yeah, debates yeah, yeah. that yeah. Pope endorses Donald Trump obviously Trump was running so i have a recollection that it was around September 2016 but you getting could probably the fact check that that was the solution that was seen as the solution that if we if we just went to the algorithms we were eliminating bias the work that i had been doing for the prior 2 years was actually looking at how conspiracy theories were just going haywire and getting amplified by you know inadvertent algorithmic amplification. And so when they eliminated the people, I thought, oh, my God, what a disaster this is going to be. <laughs> and it was. I remember when the election actually happened, I thought, okay, now we're going to talk about that. Now mm. people maybe are going to connect the dots and realize that something is so deeply broken in how we receive information now Russia was not even a thought. That was yeah. just not even, That was, it had nothing to do with Russia. It was just simply between bot amplification, getting things trending on Twitter, between haywire curatorial algorithms, trending recommendations and search. We're all vulnerable to this kind of, however you could game it. You could make whatever was popular rise to the top and it didn't matter if it was true or not. And that was what, what I was talking about then. So I, I go and I look back on it and I felt like the watershed moment was really after Brexit, after the Trump election, Mm -hmm. those those two kind of things, it was really the sense that the information market, so to speak, was inefficient, just to use your, your Lehman Brothers uh, yeah. analogy there. The, <laughs> I actually, I was a trader for seven years. I remember when Lehman Brothers went out of business. I remember Bear Stearns because that was our Were you clearing firm. Were on Wall Street then? Yeah, yeah, I was at Jane Street and Bear Stearns was our clearing firm. And so I right. get called in on a Sunday, Bear Stearns is getting taken over for $2. And I was like, what? It closed at 30 yeah. something. Yeah, how yeah. is that possible? And that's when you realize that the system is not functioning as it was intended to. And it's time for, candidly, the regulators to step in. That's what happened on Wall Street. And so this is where I think we are in in tech as well right now.
1: We're here, and you see all these stories, a steady drumbeat of these stories where it's like, okay, I just was at Facebook a couple weeks ago meeting with their um, content moderation team, and they're talking about all the things that they are doing. But then you have things like Facebook groups. If you could just talk about what's happening, just for example, in one area, vaccinations, I think that would be quite illustrative of how far we still need to go.
0: Facebook groups come in three flavors there's public, closed, and then there's secret. And you have varying degrees of visibility. If you're an outsider into public closed and secret closed, you can go and try to join. So you can see the name of the group and go and try to join it. And yet now they have you fill out some questions to avoid spammers and adding people in. Uh, and then the final is secret, where you can't even see it. You don't know it exists until you are invited into it by one a of the club, admins right. or, per- right. or persons who created it. So talking about anti-vaccine movement, they're very organized on social media. They have been for a long time. I personally was involved in the campaign to pass the law in California to eliminate vaccine opt-outs. And so that was what got me started looking at the anti-vaccine movement, was, was actually looking at it from the opposition standpoint. You know, I was on the other side of this political campaign. You know, they, they had their groups. It was very well organized. That was, I think, in 2015, really, when the political stakes became obvious to them. And so they really coalesced around becoming... Mm kind of very politically active, but they also unfortunately coalesced around using harassment as a tactic. And so a lot of what was happening in the The groups. The
1: anti-vaxxers.
0: Yeah. So a lot of it was happening. Jezebel and a couple of other publications reported on this at the time. They were using the groups to coordinate Twitter campaigns and also to coordinate harassment campaigns and then also to coordinate regular types of political activism like call your legislators. So this is all very normal political organizing activity. But what starts to happen is there's a couple ways that you grow a group audience. One is with ads. And Facebook actually had these categories by which you could run ads targeting people who were interested in, quote, vaccine controversies, or people who were interested in other anti-vaccine organizations, people who were interested in the anti-vaccine movement in general. Those of us who were building groups trying to to grow a counter movement, because this was a political situation, you know, each side grows their own audience. We didn't have, you know, there's no like pro-vaccine parent category. And that's because there's this kind of asymmetry of passion where there are a lot of very kind of true believers in conspiratorial communities and regular people just kind of vaccinate their kids and, you know, they're not joining groups to talk about how nothing happened. They just vaccinated their kids. We had to kind of come up with innovative ways to try to grow an audience using things like, you know, finding like every single ologist that, you know, every single medical category that Facebook offered, that sort of thing. But what happens is as the groups get bigger and bigger, so you run ads, people join your groups. That's the action that you're, that you're going for. Then once they're in the groups, you put them to work doing these political things. Yeah. This is just kind of marketing 101. What winds up happening, though, is that the recommendation engine on Facebook begins to push your group out once it hits a certain size. And so Facebook says, we want to encourage other people to engage with groups. That's one of their big priorities. Mark yeah, said that for the yeah. last couple of years. And so, what they do is they are encouraging people to join these groups. And so, they're pushing these anti vaccine parenting groups. So, once you join a regular parenting group, you know, I'm in a couple, I've got two kids, mm-hmm. you'll start to see groups like Stop Mandatory Vaccination, which now in 2019 has about 130,000 members. Facebook's recommendation engine will push that group at you because you're in another parenting group.
1: So it kind of doesn't matter what the group is doing. It's just a big group, and they want you to join more groups and be right. more engaged. Exactly. Right,
0: exactly. And the other thing that's interesting, so I mentioned earlier search, trending, and recommendations. Facebook got rid of trending, but search is also still a function by which when you search for vaccine on Facebook, unlike on Google, which has a framework that it calls your money or your life, where it says when you search for a topic... That's of significant health or financial, you know, where, where a yeah. search has a, the information you're going to get is going to impact your life in a significant way. There's no similar framework on Facebook. So again, that popularity is what you're going to see. And what is most popular on Facebook in terms of children's health is the anti-vaccine movement. So when you search for vaccines, you're going to be taken to all of the various controversy pages, all of the various...
1: Yeah, um, because those are the most popular. Because those are engaging. the most popular
0: a lot of times, if you think about it, what's most popular is what's most sensational. Yeah. You know, you, you either share things that are like a really good feel-good story, like a, a puppy or something, or you're sharing something that made you feel riled up. And you click the button because, you know, in your righteous indignation, you want everyone to know that this injustice yes. is happening. And that's that's where you see a lot of what gets pushed into feed, what's amplified. The signal that the algorithm gets back is that this content is engaging. And the algorithms are completely amoral, right? They don't know what they're doing this what content they're is, to do. they do exactly what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and these types of unintended consequences, which are the deliberate intent, this is what the algorithm is designed to do. The unintended consequences are the downstream impacts, and we see this on every single platform. Like, it's on like
1: measles outbreaks.
0: Right. So you have more and more people who are exposed to fear mongering content, and it's very well produced content. This is yeah. one of the things. In the era of the internet, you know, creation is virtually free also. You can make a meme in two seconds. You can throw a video up on YouTube. Yeah. You know, it's not hard to to produce high-quality content. And so that's where you do see this interesting topics begin to proliferate. And unfortunately, with enough repetition, there's a sense that this is a legitimate idea, an idea that a lot of people believe. You know, you see the 130,000 people in this anti-vaccine group. You think, well, maybe there's something yeah. to this.
1: And then, I mean, obviously measles isn't taking over the world, but it does feel like it's, I mean, there's been a spike in cases when it was once just completely, uh, basically just gone entirely.
0: Yeah. And I think the World Health Organization came out this year within their top 10 list. Vaccine hesitancy was on there and the American Association of Pediatrics and a few other health organizations have come out and said, okay, it's time to crack down on the health misinformation because this is... Google really does try to get it right in search. I mean, they've got the those cards that try to get relevant information right up to the top. If you search for MMR, it tells you about the vaccine. It's not it's not a popularity contest where, you know, your yeah. sensational Andy Wakefield claims about autism make it to the top anymore. But that's the product of of a lot of people yelling <laughs> for a while now. So when we talk about what do we want to see in the Social ecosystem, the question becomes, how do we think about transparency, accountability, and governance? And who is responsible for looking at these things? A lot of the time, the pressure comes because some investigative journalist writes the right article at the right time. Yeah. Right now, we're probably talking about this in part because I think The Guardian was it that did a big expose on it. And uh, and then I think The Daily Beast kind of mm-hmm. followed through with an investigation into how stop mandatory vaccination that group specifically worked. These are things that we've been trying to raise since 2015. since our our little political uh, debate here in California about vaccine opt-outs. And we were saying, you know, we did it because we had the measles outbreak here in California. Never waste an epidemic. You want to galvanize people. This is the way to do it. And so now here we are with measles outbreaks in New York, Oregon, and Washington. And it's 2015 playing out all over again, except this time people are a little more aware. People have finally internalized that the information ecosystem is is highly likely contributing to the growth of these conspiratorial communities in the world.
1: And so that seems to get to the point of the problem with this whole kind of edifice (coughs) is that it's built, because there's always been conspiracy theorists theorists and wackos and every stripe of person is out there, but it's really about these algorithms which seem primed to amplify or for those people to find each other and kind of get this amazing megaphone, and all of that is, of course, is part of this ad-based system. So the question is, how do you address it? How do you fix it? What, because it seems to me that you know the most straightforward answer and the most difficult is perhaps just completely remake how the internet works mm-hmm. and who pays for it. But that doesn't seem likely.
0: The ad-based business model um, it came to be called the internet's original sin. The challenge is the platforms are all competitive with each other, not because they have the same features, but because they're all attention brokers. So time that you spend on Facebook is time that you are not spending on YouTube. And mm-hmm. time, you know, similarly, um, you're not spending it on Instagram. You're not spending it on Snap. Well, it's really
1: interesting. We just did, I did a piece on Netflix recently, and I was going through their frequently asked questions. And their goal is not to get you know, more TV time or to beat cable or whatever. It's to... If you have a choice between sitting and having a glass of wine with your friends or watching another recommended show, that's what they're after. They're after every minute of your time, and they're very, very clear about it. If you think about that ambition, which feels like the same for Facebook, Instagram, all of these, it doesn't feel like it has a precedent in previous kind of Media business models,
0: right? I would say that's true. It's the it's time and attention are finite resources. So the question becomes, how do they create something engaging enough to keep you on their platform? They're not going to do that by showing you things that you don't want to see. Uh, and so what winds up happening is there's a couple of factors here. There's the consolidation of all of the people in the world, basically at this point. But but you know, two billion people on Facebook, people onto various platforms. And in the U.S., that's maybe five platforms. Yeah. There is the precision targeting. And the way that that works is it's a feedback loop. So they, they're they looking at what content you are engaged with, not what ad content, but what content. They develop a sense of who you are, kind of a profile. You can go and click in and actually look at it now. They've been working to make it more transparent so you can see what Facebook thinks you like. You can see what Google thinks you know, you're know you interested in. So they're showing you content related to that. When you click on it, you communicate back to the algorithm another Facet of of information on who you are. Now, Facebook has a thing called the tracking pixel. It's, a ad, yep. it's an ad pixel. All of them have these pixels, so that they also know what you're looking at when you're off the platform, so that that information can be used either to kind of retarget you with ads for sites that you go to. That's kind of a direct feature for it's advertisers. Kind of like an ankle
1: monitor in real life, right? It's,
0: it's an interesting <laughs> way to think about it. Yeah, it's just you know your your behavior is very much value is extracted from what you are what you are doing and it's in turn it provides you with a user experience that most people like that's why these platforms work if they if they were just you know purely you know sketchy ad platforms where all you saw was a bunch of you know shitty ads like you wouldn't you wouldn't stay but it's that they're using that to show you information about news you might like articles you might like topics you might care about that's where you have this engagement loop that just keeps you on the platform and then the last piece of it is the gameable algorithms that we were discussing, the ways in which these three factors kind of work together, and that's how you wind up with people who are spending tons of time but also seeing things that are maybe not something that they would even go proactively looking for. YouTube is the example people point to a lot in this regard, actually not so much Facebook, and that's because YouTube has the autoplay, which yeah. I've turned off in our house because we would have these fits with my son where you know they would just... He, he never felt like the episode was over, if that makes sense. Like it was just totally. oh, Well, the next one started, I, mom, yeah. and I need to wait till this one's over. Exactly. Unless you're right there at that right moment, yep. um, you realize for a child that this is incredibly frustrating. I mean, Netflix does it too. You know that the, the, yeah. the, uh, the but film, my the next two-year-old
1: but, same way. You have to be there.
0: You really do, because <laughs> yeah. because the other thing, though, you don't know what's going to autoplay. <laughs> 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 At least with Netflix, you know that it's going to be like, you know, the next yeah. stupid cartoon. But with YouTube, there were a couple times when I would come in and I'm like... Why is he watching an unboxing video? Who the hell makes unboxing videos for kids? But he got obsessed with mm-hmm. unboxing videos, and I'm like, you know, you have real toys. You can play with your real toys. He's like, no, i'm I'm, I'm watching so other people in the unboxing things. It's, it's just the weirdest phenomenon, yeah. isn't it? And God, they love it. They love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought like we actually took YouTube away. We were just like, I am more comfortable with him sitting in front of Netflix because again, YouTube was serving up things based on what was popular and again the problem is you can just bot your way to popularity you know there's yeah, um, yeah you can go on Fiverr for five bucks someone will you know have a either a team of humans or a team of robots just watch quote unquote watch your video and then you get your you know you get enough views oh, you can you actually wind pay
1: people to just to watch your stuff to kind of oh yeah it yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. there's a
0: there was an article um, I forgot which publication wrote it but it was basically the premise was the entire internet is fake I know it sounds very cynical but the way in which you game the algorithms often does involve blatant manipulation of the view counts Mm. or the like counts uh, because that's the signal that the algorithm uses to decide what's worth curating. It's a way to game it on any social platform. You can find it on Fiverr. You can find it on uh, Reddit. We'll have some groups. There's like, you know, Bitcoin for small tasks where people will go and click on things. It's a really strange, you know, strange kind of underground ecosystem that exists to...
1: It reminds, it sounds like I have a couple of friends who've written books and they're saying it's like the pre-orders. You have to get a lot of pre-orders for a book because if you can get on a list, which collates all those pre-orders in that first week of sales, then you're on a list and then it kind of, you're in, you're kind of in the mix in a way that you wouldn't be otherwise because if you're not, once you kind of fall out of that top, you kind of never get there.
0: Amazon is notorious for this. Yeah. It is Everywhere on Amazon. People don't talk about Amazon quite as much, but I did some work last year looking at review manipulation on Amazon where people are just coordinating in Facebook groups, Chinese sellers coming in saying, leave a review, I'll give it to you for free. Now they're saying leave a review, I'll give you fifteen bucks. I mean, yeah, yeah, the going rate is about fifteen dollars to leave a review for some product, and you look at it and you're like, this thing barely costs fifteen bucks. Like what kind you know, but I assume that, you know, these companies are businessmen and women and clearly they have a sense of you know they know their unit economics and 15 dollars is the cost for uh you know the the cost to get (laughs) that lift and then they run with it from there and so a lot of times though you look you look at it and you look for um products on google and if you type in like the name of a particular supplement brain booster testosterone you know supplements are huge yeah you go and you look at the ones that are returned In the Google search results, you go look at them on Amazon, and if you dig into the reviews, there's a substantial amount of review fraud. The game is just to get that SEO lift so that it either shows up in Google or it shows up at the top of the Amazon category. And And then
1: they're off to the races. And
0: they're off to the races because it becomes a feedback loop because you go and you type in that query because you're looking for it legitimately. You see, oh, it's got 10,000 reviews. How can it be? (laughs) Well, 10,000 people like this. It wouldn't be this highly rated. And then you, you buy it. So. What
1: was really funny, I bought, my wife is always cold, so I bought her a blanket, an expensive blanket. I don't usually, I was like, you know, it was, it was a Christmas gift. I found it on Google, had all of these great reviews, supposedly. I bought it, and it took seven weeks to arrive. So it arrived at the end of January. The company did not respond to any of my emails. I finally do a bit of digging, and a, this company has, like, horrendous reviews from, like, customer service, et cetera. But somehow, it was right at the top of yeah. like, this is like the most comfortable blanket, this is it. But the company is effectively a sham. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of that. And there a lot of them are like these fly-by-night companies where Amazon will shut them down for review fraud periodically, and then they'll just kind of pop back up. Right. For a lot of small businesses, this is considered the price of entry. Everyone is manipulating it, so you've got to manipulate it too. And that's a kind of a terrible place to be. And so whether it's health misinformation or blatant mm. consumer fraud, the people who are getting screwed are just regular people. Or political manipulation. Or political manipulation especially, right. It's, it's just regular people who don't have visibility into how the algorithms work. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's actually completely unreasonable, in my opinion, to think that regular people should go digging through 10,000 Amazon reviews to try to figure out if they're Which real ones or not. Are real, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, because I feel like I'm pretty savvy because I have to write about this stuff and every once in a while I just get... Like with this blanket gate, I get completely caught.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, it can happen to anybody. I buy stuff from China. I do. I actually am kind of fascinated by markets and arbitrage. It's the olden days of being a trader. You never lose that. One thing that's very interesting is um, ways in which Amazon actually solves the problem, of the distribution problem that you're talking about there with the seven weeks mm. and the users who don't want to deal with that. Yeah. And so you'll see people will kind of send a bunch of, uh, you know, we'll send one crate over yeah. and then they'll piggyback on the fulfilled by Amazon user experience. And that's how you get products that are of dubious authenticity sometimes also that will make their way in. Yeah. I think Birkenstocks pulled their listings from Amazon as a result of uh, fraud. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Kind of like knockoffs from China were coming right, over and being right. sold as, uh, as the real deal. There is a lot of click fraud, right? A lot of ad fraud. And advertisers who are putting ads in front of videos that are getting botted to millions of views, is that's fraud. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you could just talk a bit about how you came to be doing this work. Because as you say, you started off obviously in a very different world, and you ended up looking at how ISIS spreads this message online.
0: Yeah, I know. I've had a... (laughs) that's impossible to explain at this point. I actually got into it through the anti-vaccine stuff. I was a mom. My my son was born in 2013. I had to put him into preschool, you know, daycare. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got to go, and you've probably done this. You've you done right, fill out all the papers. Yeah, it was and terrible yeah. forms. sit on wait lists for God knows how long. And one of the things I checked, because I had moved from New York to San Francisco, and I knew that the California had an anti-vaccine issue, was I was like, well, I don't want to put my kid into a school with a lot of anti-vaxxers. And the California Department of Public Health has data sets publicly. Anybody can search for them, and you can see school Mm. by school how many kids have exemptions. They were called personal belief exemptions at the time. I downloaded 10 years of that data, and I wrote up a blog post looking at the trend over time because it was really disturbing. I said, okay, like— this is a disaster waiting to happen. We have schools with like 30% vaccination coverage. That's like South Sudan. Like what the hell is going on? And, and that was Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Berkeley. <laughs> and, and I thought, um, all right. So I actually called my uh, my state senator, it was Mark Leno at the time. And I'd never done that before, but I was- I You was were exercised. Just, I was really pissed. Yeah. yeah. And- and I was like, come on, can't San Francisco pass something independent of the state of California to just crack down here? Yeah. Um, I know that's not how it works. So I got this crash course in California politics. But then the Disneyland outbreak happened two months later. And I called again. And I was like, okay, guys, this is the moment. <laughs> um, and they connected me to Dr. Pan's office. And he was the Sacramento senator who had introduced uh, the law to eliminate the opt outs. And to make a long story a whole lot shorter, I said, look, you know, let me help you with like growing the Facebook, uh, the parent movement in California, people like me, there are other people like me. I see them in the mom groups, let's just try to make them coalesce. And that was when I realized that the anti-vaccine movement had been doing this for years and that they had this kind of juggernaut where as soon as I indicated an interest in something related to vaccines, I actually started seeing all of the anti-vaccine content. It was getting pushed to me in my recommendation engine. And I'm saying like...
1: Not that you were saying you were interested in anti-vaccines. No, just just that I was, just that I began
0: to manage a page related to vaccines. It's called Vaccinate California. And just engaging with and sharing content about this topic, I just got this deluge, just this barrage of crap. And I thought like, this is insane. I'm getting ads in my feed from anti-vaccine organizations trying to get me to join these groups. I go and I look at these groups. I realize that they're huge. And, uh, and then I started digging around and realized that a lot of the people were pretending to be Californians, so they weren't even really Californian. Right. And then I was involved in looking at the Twitter analysis. And I, I uh, wrote an article for Wired with a data scientist named Galado Tan, where we actually started looking at the evolution of the conversation on Twitter and watching the ways in which they were reaching out to the Church of Scientology, Nation of Islam, the kind of, at the time it was the Tea Party, this was kind of before the alt-right, so it's just the Tea Party, right? The way in which...
1: Trying to co-opt them to the...
0: Yeah, to kind of get them to participate right. in the in the online debate. And so the bill was polling at 85% positive when the legislators were taking polls of their districts. What bill? And SB 277 was the name of the bill to, to eliminate the opt-outs in California. Got you, got you. So we have a social media conversation that is overwhelmingly negative. We have social platforms that are amplifying one mm-hmm. side inadvertently, again, and then we have the real numbers, when the legislators are actually calling, telling the complete opposite story. So the bill is polling at 85% positive. The social media conversation is almost 100% negative. And it was really interesting to see that as the impact that share of voice could have and Mm. the ways in which share of voice could be gamed, the ways in which either the algorithms would inadvertently amplify it or the... Uh, or you could run bots, or you could pretend to be someone else, you know, fake Twitter personas, that kind of thing. And that was sort of my first very personal kind of introduction into, God, this is a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Independent of, uh, you know, we wound up getting the, getting the bill passed, but I continued to do research into other conspiratorial movements because what began to happen was that the recommendation engine, you know, I went and I created a research account, and I liked a bunch of anti-vax pages, and I just um, I wanted to see what would happen next, and it started to show me flat earther groups, and it started to show me chemtrails content, you know, the things that you would expect, but then mm. one day it started to show me Pizzagate And this was before Pizzagate was a thing. So Pizzagate was not a mainstream media story. The guy hadn't gone and shot up the pizza place yet. Pizzagate was an online conspiracy theory.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, sorry.
0: (laughs) I forget that there are large numbers of people who (laughs) (laughs) remain blissfully unaware of Pizzagate. Pizzagate was this crackpot theory that Hillary Clinton was running a child sex ring out of the basement of a pizza place in Washington, D.C. called Comet Ping Pong. And this was a conspiracy theory that came out of the WikiLeaks email dumps. So it was like a 2016 thing. And this pizza place didn't even have a basement, but that doesn't matter. Yeah. So this conspiracy theory began to grow and fester online.
1: it started showing up in your And feeds. it started showing
0: up in my feeds. you know. And I clicked and I joined. And I was like, oh, my God. We've got this conspiracy correlation matrix. We're basically taking people who are interested in one kind of conspiratorial theory, in this case a pseudoscience or health-related mm you know, misinformation, and then we're feeding them political content. That's the, the reason this kind of thing happens is what's called collaborative filtering. Yeah, it shows you things that people who, you know, it has this profile of you. And it shows you things kind that people, people who like are similar you. to right. you enjoy. And that's how, as I mentioned, on Twitter, the anti vaccine movement had been doing a bunch of outreach to kind of Tea Party politics and so as those bridges were built, you can see how the recommendation engine would recognize that you know these sort of social ties had shifted. These, uh, yeah. it's, it's very reactive. It does exactly what it's supposed to do, which is surface that signal and push it back to uh, push it back to the people. Yeah. Uh, just as a suggestion, hey, you might like this.
1: It's a completely kind of bloodless mechanism, absolutely responding to the data. Yeah. yeah,
0: and and then you know QAnon came later, and you know QAnon shows up in the recommendation engine. So the question becomes how do we preserve freedom of speech freedom of expression you know even though you can make the argument that in the strict legal sense freedom of speech is not what, what governs yeah. your your social media if we if we stick to the spirit of the conversation the spirit of the question it's how do the platforms navigate letting this content stay on the platform because people have a right to be anti-vaccine people have a right to be interested in pizza place conspiracy theories
1: Without it being societally damaging,
0: right. So, what what are the downstream effects? Is anybody looking at the downstream effects? I would argue that in 2015, 2016, no, no one was. Now, I think people are, and that's why you're yeah, starting just to 111 see.
1: we have a 111-page report from the UK. Right,
0: 111 pages from the UK. We have YouTube finally in response to a Buzzfeed expose, and, and Buzzfeed's expose on YouTube's recommendation algorithm was probably the fifth that I've seen mm. over the last three years. But again, now the the kind of tides have, um, have shifted and, and people are more aware that the information ecosystem is not really functioning in a way that's particularly beneficial uh, yeah. to society at this point. And so but how
1: problematic is this idea that Facebook, Google, etc., they're contorting themselves to say we are a <coughs> platform, we are not publishers, we are not editors. Because if they take that step That affirmative step to say, okay, actually, we do have responsibility for what appears on our pages. Then you become a media company. Then the whole legal kind of world in which they operate changes dramatically. And there's a whole lot more responsibility and liability and everything
0: else. Yeah. Well, I think the U.K. report came out and said that the idea that they're they're not going to be liable is over. The U.S. is. I know that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get it done. But that was the uh, that was one of the things that they were saying mm. um, yesterday, yesterday's yesterday's writing in the United States. It's governed under the Communications Decency Act, Section Two Thirty. Yeah. what that says is that the platforms have the right to moderate. Basically, it gives them the right to moderate as they see fit. It says that you are not liable for the content on your platform. So there's indemnity. It's uh, intermediary liability laws. The particular. Topical scope is kind of a niche thing, but it is actually very interesting because what CDA Section 230 gives them is as uh, Senator Ron Wyden, who wrote the law in I think nineteen ninety-six, said that it gives you a sword and a shield. So it gives you the shield of you know, you are indemnified, but it also gives you the sword, which says that you can moderate as you see fit. What they unfortunately did with it over a period of you know, that that period of time, the last decade, two decades. Is they um, they use the shield, <laughs> and that's basically <laughs> it. You know, if you remember, again, thinking back to 2015, the dominant conversation wasn't even fake news. It was harassment. Yeah. It was the platform companies doing nothing because for some reason the free speech of trolls was privileged, and yeah. they weren't thinking of it in terms of like, that kind of speech silences the speech of others by pushing them off the platforms, right? So that was a whole conversation that we were having back in 2015. It seems very quaint now because the platforms have begun to realize that this is not a good look and uh, to take steps. So they can change their terms of service to accommodate a lot of, uh, you know, they have a lot of uh, of leeway and a lot of power Mm. using their terms of service. So I think the question becomes, you know, are they publishers... I would argue that when they're acting as curators and when you have curatorial algorithms like recommendation engines, you do have a higher standard of care in what you choose to show people because this is where people get their information now. You, you would never go into a Nobody library else, yeah. and, you know, you get a cancer diagnosis. You go to a library, you're not going to find a bunch of, like, crap telling you that juice and mushrooms are going to fix you, right? You're going to find real books. Yeah. Somebody has exercised curatorial oversight in deciding what is going to be in that library. So in this particular case, we have a situation where if you do go searching for cancer materials, unfortunately what you'll find is a whole lot of quackery. It's everywhere on Facebook. It's everywhere on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Google Search is one of the few platforms that under Your Money or Your Life, that framework that I was talking about, uh, has actually begun to rein it in. And that's well, Your Money or Your
1: Life, how long? What's, I've never even heard of that.
0: I know. It's um, I think maybe – two years old now. It is up on their site. You can, go, you can Google. You can Google it. <laughs> it's uh, And Google has a great... I have a guy named Danny Sullivan who's a great, great person to follow on Twitter because he explains all kinds of interesting mm. things when the autocomplete seems to go haywire or when image search returns something weird. Um, he's kind of like the public search explainer. Your money or your life is the idea that there are certain... Areas, certain search areas where when the, where there, uh, so Google has uh, people reviewing search results. And so there are certain additional yeah. elements that go into the evaluation of health and finance related queries that have dramatic, right. dramatic impact. The way that you deal with, to, to kind of go back to your question, the yeah. way that you deal with the speech and the freedom and the where you liable, you can continue to host these things and not promote them. That is the sort of middle ground that yeah. I think is where we need to be. I think it's a you have to a, an dig really deep to, to find
1: the really Yeah, you know, you
0: go and click stuff. your click a couple pages in or you um, yeah. if you really want to find a cancer juice page or an anti-vaccine, yeah. you know, support group, you can still find those things. You just have to, you know, be a little bit like it's not going to be a thing that the recommendation engine is going to spontaneously push to you. Yeah. When I was getting those Pizzagate suggestions, I had never typed Pizzagate into a search box. It was entirely organically generated yeah, yeah. by the plot. It was entirely pushed. I do think that when you're pushing, you are, in a sense, almost acting as an editor. You are acting as a—you know, you're, you're driving people's choices. You're putting information mm-hmm. in front of them, things that they hadn't been looking for. The goal is, of course, to create you know serendipity and delight, but, I mean— yeah. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't seem to be what's happening now.
1: And so in terms of if just thinking about this report from the UK and some of the things that are happening, some of the kind of if slow moving movements in Congress, are there a couple things that are do you think that are deliverable and that could actually make a real difference? Mark Zuckerberg is kind of saying until he's blue in the face, we we support regulation. Google's saying the same, but I don't know what that means.
0: I think they both supported the Honest Ads Act in theory. That's related to political disclosures. Yeah, and Who pays for what ads. Yeah, who pays for what ads. You know, it's hard in the U.S. because dark money is who knows who's actually – like the, the name on who's paying for it, you still don't even know who exactly. that is, right? So it's a step. I think the U.K. report highlights something that, that I've noticed here too, which is the, the discussion of what the problem is. Privacy is one facet. Monopoly is another thing that comes up a lot, the idea that they're too consolidated. They hold too much economic power and uh, and control over what people see by virtue of Mm. monopoly. Privacy, monopoly, data, data rights, data breaches, data rights, data value. And then what I work on, which is disinformation. So there are regulatory proposals on the table now for all of these things. I try to stay focused on disinformation because that's more my wheelhouse and I don't want to go into shallow water with the others, but I think for disinformation, what I hope to see is multi-stakeholderism, so the formalization of bodies where we share information that would have to be between governments, platforms, and researchers, and that's as a way to help uncover these operations early because they are continuing to happen looking at oversight, who regulates the platforms. To go back to finance, you know, we have um, when the market goes haywire, and I'll use the example of like when high frequency trading first came to the markets, right? You have the SEC, which is a federal regulator and and has rulemaking authority and can sort of sits up at the top. Then you have FINRA and some of the broker dealer associations, and those kind of set norms, right? They say like as broker dealers, these are the ethical and and other um, constraints that that you know that we're going to adhere to, and then you have the exchanges, which is kind of they kind of control. They can halt things. They can change rules. They can you know they don't do it very often, but they have the power to create ways in which each exchange can function yeah. uh, in a particular um, in a particular way. And so you have this kind of multi-tiered system where there is the ability to respond rapidly. And then there is the ability up at the top to have more of a, a government oversight and a large uh, framework kind of approach. I think finance, we don't really have – we've got nothing for a, – a, sorry, for, for tech, we don't have anything up at the top. There's nobody in charge, really. There's the FTC under some of the consumer protection type stuff, but that hasn't worked out very well. There's the FEC related to elections specifically. Yeah. Um, that also, I think, is, you know, working on getting up to speed on – what political ads look like in the modern era. But we're kind of at a, right now, a need to establish multi-stakeholderism for information sharing and then an oversight body. And the oversight body is largely because someone has to ensure that the platforms are, you know, self-regulation isn't enough, I think. We've seen that.
1: So like the Federal Social Media Association or the Federal... Yeah, you know, you'd hope that you could
0: leverage an existing entity like the FTC, but something where there's a little bit more accountability and governance, you know, yeah. governance looking towards accountability.
1: You did some work on ISIS?
0: Yes. So so after I did the work on the anti-vaccine movement, I, I had written up a bunch of stuff on how the Twitter network operated. And the U.S. Digital Service reached out. Megan Smith was the CTO of, of the U.S. under the Obama administration and, and reached out and said, what you're writing about with regard to this particular community seems pretty close to what we're seeing with how terrorists are using the information ecosystem. Mm. And I met a researcher named Jonathan Morgan, and he had done a paper called the ISIS Twitter Census for Brookings. And the ISIS Twitter Census, I highly recommend reading it now so you can see where the kind of state of the art was in 2015, because it's actually not that far <laughs> from where the state of the art is now. Right. And what Jonathan studied was the ISIS Twitter bots and we were at the time a lot of bot researchers it was it's funny it was called bot researchers not disinformation researchers because we didn't know about the Facebook pages until yeah. about a year later we were having these conversations about how the social media ecosystem was manipulatable in very predictable ways and it didn't matter like what the adversary was going for what mattered is that if they want if you wanted to get a message out if you wanted to dominate share a voice if you wanted to what came to be called manufacture consensus, create the impression that a whole lot of people feel the same way, there were some very predictable pathways and actions that you could take to achieve those goals. And the same kind of thing that I was seeing in anti-vaccine land where a relatively small number of people compared to the you know population of the yeah. U.S. were owning the conversation online, there were a lot of concerns that similar things were happening with extremism and that extremist voices particularly terrorist and and islamic extremists like isis were doing the same thing we're running the same playbook so my involvement was to look at what a whole of government strategy could potentially be to think about this problem and so in 2015 we were already thinking about this is a giant propaganda mill what what can we do about it and um DARPA had run a program from 2012 to 2015 called Social Media and Strategic Communication. And it was a collection of research on what happens when the social media ecosystem becomes a giant propaganda machine. Right. And they even had a bot detection challenge. Yeah. And funny enough, their bot detection challenge used an anti-vax data set, used anti-vax Twitter. <laughs> right. I just about died when that came out. <laughs> I was like, ah, everybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so in 2015 there were already very solid indications that this was happening people knew people in government knew the russia stuff we did actually kind of know because i think it was june 2015 that adrian chen had written the article called um the agency mm. wh- which was an article he wrote for times magazine it's absolutely fantastic everyone should go back and read it about the internet research agency about the russian trolls targeting the us at the time this was you know seen as like kind of internet trolling just sort of you know yeah. haha they're just running propaganda campaigns pretending to, you know, amplify celebrity content and stuff. But that was like the opening salvos. Mm. And we missed it. We missed the significance of what was going to happen with that. And so as we were thinking about what's the government strategy for responding to this stuff, ISIS was the first thing that really got people to the table. ISIS was the thing that, you know, the government and the tech platforms, they didn't get along particularly well. This was relatively soon after the Snowden revelations. Nobody wanted right. to be seen as like cooperating with yeah. the government. But DARPA had already been looking at this. Government was looking at this. You know, we did know that Russia was running pages. We didn't know that Russia was going to flat out interfere in an election, but you know, we knew that they were running propaganda targeting Americans. You know, again, I go back and <laughs> go back and read the articles of the day, you'll see a lot of um the EFF and kind of civil liberties organizations saying But if we take down ISIS, what a slippery slope. What a terrible precedent. Well,
1: it's really interesting. You mentioned the EFF. I talked to them around a story I did on Backpage. Yeah. And, you know, closing that down. And they were, you know, they were writing briefs in support of Backpage. Totally, yeah, yeah. um, Which, of course, is like used for prostitution and child sex trafficking, all kinds of terrible things. Specifically on that argument that this is the beginning of a slippery slope. You know, we're just shutting down avenues of free speech if you do this, even if this is reprehensible with a lot of what happens here.
0: Yeah, that's the, uh, I mean, that's the main concern, right? Which is, this is where the transparency piece of (laughs) transparency, accountability, and governance comes in. Yeah, there are frameworks for moderation. Now, the EFF doesn't love the... um, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Very few people do, but it was originally put in place for movie and music producers to go after copyright violations. Right, And then as, you know, as user-created content and everything else, the internet kind of proliferated. It's a bit unwieldy, but there is a framework by which if you file a copyright takedown, you put your contact information on it, you put counterclaim information on it. Um, so there's a, you know, kind of a redress mechanism for the person. If I am claiming against you, you have the ability to uh, to defend yourself. And the other thing that's there is there's a framework, um, there's a database called Lumen. And inside Lumen is, uh, you know, there's these copies of the complaints. And so so there is a record of what kind of uh, content has come down. Right. And most of the platforms, I think, put out these transparency reports where they also disclose how many requests they get and how many requests they 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 respond to all of them under the terms they have to i believe pull it down until the counterclaim happens but but that's sort of an interesting framework for how we could think about moderation more broadly right? right you have transparency you have redress those are the two things that i think are most important so that people can accuse the platforms of silently censoring and the platforms can't silently censor so this is where there are middle grounds the you know sky isn't going to fall if if there's one yeah. false takedown or there, or there's one erroneous piece of information that comes down. I think that we live in a weird time where any takedown is immediately politicized by like some hysterical rage mob online, Yes. whether it's on the left or on the right at this point. And this idea that you've been like fundamentally harmed because your content kind of came down for a second. I think that we can do better than this. And I think that that's where we should be headed, which is to think about as a society, where do you know, what are the norms of offline speech that we wanna see exist online? What are the ways in yeah. which regulation can assist with that? There was somebody, I had an interesting conversation with someone who was like, um, he was a reporter and I think Alex Jones showed up to a panel he was giving uh, in person mm-hmm. and screamed with a megaphone at the audience for a few minutes. And then they escorted him out of the room, yeah. and the panel continued. You know, <laughs> and I and I heard this story, and I thought, like, God, that doesn't happen online. You know, no, because nothing, like nothing happens. Yeah. Nothing, <laughs> no kind
1: of civility ex- exists. Right, online right. Yeah, or, yeah, he he
0: got to say his thing. Yeah, he was escorted out because that's not what people yeah. were there to hear. And nobody screamed about how he was being censored when he yeah. was being escorted out of the room. You know, and, and we just we just don't have that. There's no. Uh, I think that.
1: There's zero guardrails, it feels like.
0: Yeah, and I think that we can come up with just a better way of of doing things, a better way of moderating, more transparent, more accountable, less prone to accusations of censorship. We can think about what the downstream harms are. You know, we're there on downstream harms with like Facebook doesn't accept money for tobacco ads, uh, to the best of of my knowledge, as I've gone through their terms of service, but they will accept money for anti-vaccine ads. So, you know, the question becomes, what are the harms? A lot of the tobacco stuff is related to self-harm and societal harm and public health. There are arguments to be made that... There's a lot yeah. of parallels there, but we're more in alignment on tobacco as a society, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't worry about the free speech rights of big tobacco. So it's, it, it's a very evolving space. I don't claim to have the answers. You know, <laughs> I probably yeah. don't have very many, <laughs> um, but I think it's an interesting—we've seen such significant shifts in how we've thought about this stuff since 2016 that I'm really curious to see. I feel like 2019 is going to be the year when we start to have a little more in the way of— uh, Specifics.
1: So you are hopeful, because that was going to be my last question, because I was, I'm sure you saw that, like, um, Jack Dorsey did a big, he was on about 18 podcasts in yeah. the space of three weeks talking. Yes. And, it, and it was a lot of this kind of acknowledging all of these problems and kind of pretty mealy mouth, like, yeah, we really need it. We're working on it. And these are hard questions. And we've got a lot of balancing to do. And it just it. it and it's the same thing with Mark Zuckerberg. It feels a lot of it feels just very reactive. Of kind of like, oh, you've got this problem. No, we don't know. Oh, okay, now we're going to fix it. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, whack-a-mole.
0: It and is, and it's, and it's largely driven by um, by media exposés rather yeah. than in, rather, rather than, than internal self-policing and being yeah.
1: like, actually, we are a huge platform. I mean, you're talking about propaganda and, like, it, I think of the image of planes dropping leaflets over you know, yeah. enemy territory. This is, like, the biggest fleet of planes the world has ever seen. And they're, it's happening every day, and it's kind of like, well, it's, you know. We're a platform. We're just. We're just. You know. We're not responsible, and it feels there's like a kind of an abdication of duty.
0: Yeah, I think you know Facebook had a pretty remarkable turnaround from the fake news on the platform couldn't have done anything, and it was only hundred thousand dollars of Russian ads to where we are today with a you know war room and a, yeah. Um, rethinking some of those policies, Honest Ads Act, kind of not Honest Ads Act, but their version of um, kind of preempting almost the yeah. legislation by, by creating that transparency themselves. They're making you know, a lot of the platform companies are doing a ton of hiring right now, increasing moderation, not necessarily rethinking the frameworks of moderation. I think that's coming. I think that that's one of the areas that we'll see a lot of activity in in 2019, moderation standards for the industry perhaps whereas previously it's been very much uh, ad hoc. Each platform does its own. And that was, I think, in some ways good because you could go to Reddit maybe for more unvarnished stuff than you would see on a...
1: The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station.
0: iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with.
1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Family site like Facebook. But I think that now there's a sense that maybe having some societal standards is, uh, is an interesting way to think about the problem, uh, to, to think about a solution. And that was where we had moderation principles begin to emerge. Right. I have found Twitter on a personal level to be a lot better. I mean, I have, you know, there's that interstitial now where they hide the crap comments. So <laughs> <laughs> I always click in. I'm so curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and there's false positives in there sometimes. Like, you know, somebody uses an expletive in their reply and it right. gets gray boxed and I wish there was a way to say, like, show me the ones that have the curses in them and you know. You know. <laughs> yeah. But but that's actually where we get it like user choice, right? Like mm-hmm. there might there are people who go and turn off all those things and just want the full on varnished like yeah. you know, Twitter experience. Bl- yeah. And then there <laughs> yeah, are yeah. others who don't. Same thing with you know, giving users a little bit more control, I think is another area that the platforms potentially have some some leeway with where you put a little bit more control into the hands of uh, people for some yeah. of this stuff and then thinking about societal harms. And, and that's where I really do think Google's uh, Google's framework is, is better than anybody else's at this point. I would love to see your money or your life be applied anywhere where there's Everywhere, a search. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like if you want to find it, it's there, but it's not going to yeah. be you the said it's first two, thing. Two, three years
1: old. I'm, I mean, this is the first I've heard of it. Yeah. Which is crazy. Before you go, is there anything coming from from you or your work that we should be keeping an eye out for um, plug.
0: I'm looking at you know this is kind of a down year for elections, so I'm spending a bunch of time on um actually kind of consumer protection type stuff. I'm mm. really interested in um I'm interested in commerce right now I'm interested in uh, Amazon right now ways in which the same kind of amoral algorithms manifest on platforms that don't get as much attention so not just the not just big social but looking at areas where it's coming into play and in smaller you know either smaller or not social amazon of course not small right right
1: (laughs) (laughs) and that is all the time we have i have a quick request before you go please stop take a moment give a rating and review it really does help Other people find the show, kind of pushes it up the rankings, and it's just, it would be a great favor to me. So please take a moment, do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And in the meantime, as ever, actually I won't be writing in the paper this week. It's a short section because I was kind of out. I wasn't really able to write this week. So I will be on the Twitters here and there at Danny Fortson. You can also email me at danny.fortson at sunday dot. UK. That is it. And I will talk to you next week.